Let's open our Bibles to the book of Hosea, the 10th chapter. In the 9th chapter, we had Israel once beloved, but now wanders. And in the 10th chapter, beginning verses 1 through 11, we have their guilt and punishment. The guilt and punishment of Israel as a nation. I want you to notice, it says in verse 1, Israel, an empty vine. A vine emptying the fruit that was given to it. God had blessed Israel. And now we find that they were they had not uh, proved to be anything but an empty vine. He bringeth forth fruit unto himself. By the way, that is the way to be empty, is to just bring forth fruit unto yourself. According to the multitude of his fruit, he hath increased the altars. So what he did was, instead of using Israel, instead of using their fruit for blessings for others, they just took it and invested it in Altars for their idolatrous worship. According to the goodness of his land, they have made goodly images. As a nation, they had prospered and increased tremendously. And in their increase, they had increased their altars and their images instead of using it for good and for God. It says in verse 2, Their heart is divided. Now shall they be found faulty. He shall break down their altars. He shall spoil their images. So God is announcing not only their guilt but their judgment and their punishment that's going to come as a result. Men will not always get by with turning against God and breaking His laws and going off into sinful and idolatrous worship. And God says He's going to break down their altars and spoil their images. And we find in this chapter where that's exactly what He does. If you notice verse 3, it says, For now they shall say, We have no king, because we feared not the Lord. What then should a king do to us? Remember in the days of the judges that the Bible says that in those days there was no king in Israel. And it's repeated. This is kind of like a refrain in the book of Judges. And it says, And every man did that which was right in his own eyes or in his own sight. That was a sad situation, wasn't it? And before the, before the king that they requested, Saul, was set upon the throne... This was a king of their own choice, but before this, God Himself was their ruler, their king, their guide, and He spoke to them through uh, His uh, called leaders, delivered them by Moses, Joshua in the Old Testament, gave them leaders and uh, from time to time, and yet they, decide, they desired themselves to have a king. They, wanted to, they said, you know, their reason was that we want to be like all the other nations, Kind of reminds me of Christianity sometimes. We want to be like everyone else. In other words, we cannot be the separated people that God expects us to be. We want to be popular in society. Well, I'll tell you, you're not going to be very popular if you live a good, godly Christian life. You're going to have people that will be in opposition to you. And you just well understand that right off. You remember, Paul said in the book of Acts, they that will live godly shall suffer persecution. And you say, well, I haven't been persecuted. In some fashion or form, you have been. If you try to live for the Lord, you will be. So it says, For now they shall say, We have no king, because we feared not the Lord. They realize it's their fault at times. What then should a king do to us? They have spoken words swearing falsely and making a covenant. Thus judgment springeth up as hemlock, in the furrows of the field. It was like poison to them. And they had spoken and swore falsely in making a covenant. They were not faithful to what God 
had called them to do. And then it says, and we find that there was going, there's going to be judgment upon their idolatry. In verse 5 it says, The inhabitants of Samaria shall fear because of the calves of beth For the people thereof shall mourn over it, and the priests thereof that rejoice on it, for the glory thereof, because it is departed from it. God sent His judgment upon the calves that they worshipped. And then in verse 6 it says, It shall also... It shall be also carried unto Assyria for a present to the king, to King Jerob. The calf that they worshipped, it, the word it there refers to the calf that they worshipped. It says it shall be carried unto Assyria, the very place that they were going to be taken into captivity. There was a Assyrian captivity before there was a Babylonian captivity. By the way, if you are familiar with uh, the map and Old Testament times, Babylonia was where King Hussein is now. Saddam Hussein. That's where he... That's the area. And so that whole area of Iraq was at that time Babylon. And you find the rivers describe the area. Of course, they were going to take... being taken into captivity to Assyria first. It shall also be also carried into Assyria for a present to the King Jerob, the calf that they worshipped. Ephraim shall receive shame, and Israel shall be ashamed of his own counsel. Isn't it a terrible thing to be ashamed of your own advice, of your own reasoning? Come to find out it backfires on you. And certainly it did for Israel and for Ephraim. In verse 7, As for Samaria, her king is cut off as the foam upon the water. See the foam upon the water? You've seen the tide come in? It's got all the foam and the... the, uh, white caps and everything comes in there and then it disappears and it's cut off or carried away. Verse 8 says, The high places also of Avon, the sin of Israel, shall be destroyed. God says, I'm going to destroy everything that pertains to their idolatrous worship. The thorn and the thistle shall come up on their altars. Instead of being clean and neat and ready for uh, their idol worship, God said they'd grow up with thorns and thistles on their altars. And they shall say to the mountains, cover us, and to the hills fall on us. They'll be sick and tired of their idolatry. This has a relation to, we find over in the book of Revelation, where people are crying for the same thing. There'll be a future time that that people will cry out for the mountains to fall on them. Jesus predicted that. He speaks of it. And then you find the book of Revelation where it speaks of the very same thing. I believe it's Revelation chapter 6 and verse... uh, Let's see if it's verse 16. I believe that's where you'll find it. Let's read it in Revelation chapter 6. It's come to future time in the Great Tribulation. Let's begin reading with verse uh, 14. It says, And the heaven departed as a scroll when it is rolled together, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. And the kings of the earth... Notice who's crying out here. The kings of the earth and the great men and the rich men and the chief captains and the mighty men and every bondman and every freeman hid themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains. Now look, verse 16. And said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of Him that sitteth on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of His wrath is come. And who shall be able to stand? When God's judgment finally comes... In full force, men will be crying out 
for the rocks and the mountains to fall on them. And notice that word, who shall be able to stand. You have Revelation 6, verse 17. And I want you to look over in the next chapter in verse 9. And we'll see who is able to stand. 7, verse 9. After this I beheld, and lo, a great multitude which no man could number of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues stood before the throne and before they what? They stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palms in their hands, and cried with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God which sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb. Those that are clothed in white robes later on, this great multitude, the redeemed, those that belong to God, the white robes are symbolical of, of righteousness. And so they stood. They were able to stand. But no one else is able to stand. Back in Hosea chapter 10, and verse 8 says, The high places also of Avon, the sin of Israel, shall be destroyed. The thorn and the thistle shall come up on their altars. They shall say to the mountains, uh, Cover us, and to the hills fall on us. Now verse 9, O Israel, thou hast sinned from the days of Gibeah. Remember we referred to that in the, uh, I believe it was the ninth chapter, the days of Gibeah. Verse 9, it says, They have deeply corrupted themselves as in the days of Gibeah. And this, again, refers to Judges chapter 19, where you find uh, the situation that it relates to the shocking rape and murder of the Levite's wife and the things that transpire in the, in the book of Judges, the 19th chapter. And God says here in 10, verse uh, 9, O Israel, thy sin from the days of Gibeah, from the days till then, there they stood. The battle in Gibeah against the children of iniquity did not overtake them. When they had sinned about as deeply and horribly as they could, then it finds that they did not, it didn't do them any good. Verse 10, It is my desire that I should chastise them, and the people shall be gathered, the nations, the people shall be gathered against them. When God chastises His own, He says the people or the nations shall be gathered against them when they shall bind themselves in their two furrows. The nations. God, many times in the Old Testament, if you'll remember, we uh, said time and time again that He used the nations, even wicked nations, to oppress them and to judge them and to chastise them. You find all through the book of, well, even in the days of Joshua, He had to fight with the kings and the oppressors were those that were thorns in their sides. And the book of Judges, it got worse and worse. And so the people shall be gathered against them. In verse 11, And Ephraim is as an heifer that is taught, and loveth to tread out the corn. But I passed over, her, over upon her fair neck. I will make Ephraim to ride. Judah shall plow, and Jacob shall break his clods. you got all three involved. Ephraim, Judah, and Jacob. Usually Ephraim is addressed to speak of the nation of Israel as a whole. Sometimes instead of Israel here, I will make Ephraim to ride. Judah shall plow. That's the other part of the uh, broken nation. And Jacob, of course, is speaking of, of the old name of Israel, his natural human name before he was called Israel. And Jacob shall break his clods. Now I want you to notice in verses 12 through 15 an exhortation for the nation and, and a rebuke. 
as they would return. Notice, he says in verse 12, Sow to yourselves in righteousness, reap in mercy. He tells them to sow to themselves in righteousness. And what will they reap? They'll reap in mercy. He says, break up your fallow ground. That means that's simply speaking about true repentance on their part. For it is time to seek the Lord till He come and rain righteousness upon you. And so God was asking through the prophet here, true repentance. And in verse 13, he says, he tells the result of their own uh, plowing. He says, you have plowed wickedness, you have reaped iniquity. You know, you reap what you sow. They had plowed wickedness and reaped iniquity. You have eaten the fruit of lies because thou didst trust in thy way and the in the multitude of thy mighty men. God in great infinite patience waited on them because He knew that they were a rebellious people. And He permitted them to reap what they had sown. And yet He was calling them to true repentance in verse 12 to break up their fallow ground till He would come and rain righteousness upon them. Surely verse 13 signifies that they were sick of the ways that they had been living. Therefore shall a tumult arise, verse 14, among thy people, and all thy fortresses shall be spoiled as Shalman spoiled Beth Arba in the day of battle. Shalman is a short name for Shalmaneser in those days. The mother was dashed in pieces upon her children. It says, So shall Bethel do unto you because of your great wickedness. Bethel drew God's wrath and ended the monarchy in Israel and their national existence. And Bethel was the seat of Israel's idolatry and their having to reap the awful consequence of their deeds. So shall Bethel do unto you because of your great wickedness. In the morning shall the king of Israel utterly be cut off. In chapter 11, you find the mercy of a merciful God, verses 1 through 11. Now, I want to get into it. We may not get very far, but I want to get at least one particular point in the 11th chapter, and we want to study it out because it's very important. I want you to notice what it says in verse 1. When Israel was a child, then I loved him and called my son out of Egypt. And as they called them, so they went from them. They sacrificed them to Balaam and burned incense to graven images. Those first two verses. The first one especially shows that Israel as a nation was considered God's child. There are two references here, and I want to give you something that uh, I hope will be a blessing. And probably you've studied it out, and I've taught it before. So you may even remember it from the teaching. But if not, you probably studied it out. But I want you to look in the book of Exodus 4, verse 22 and 23. And remember, it says, When Israel was a child, then I loved him and called my son out of Egypt. Israel as a nation. In Exodus, if you'll look, chapter 4. Let's begin reading with uh, verse 21. And the Lord said unto Moses, When thou goest to return into Egypt, seest Seest that thou do all those wonders before Pharaoh which I have put in thine hand, but I will harden his heart that he shall not let the people go. And thou shalt say, look at verse 22, Thou shalt say unto Pharaoh, Thus saith the Lord. What does he say? Israel is my son, even my firstborn. 
And I say unto thee, Let my son go, that he may serve me. And if thou refuse to let him go, behold, I will slay thy son, even thy firstborn. So God says in verse 22, Israel is my son. Now, back in Hosea 11, verse 1, it says, When Israel was a child, then I loved him and called my son out of Egypt. So as a nation and as a people, Israel was called out of Egypt and, of course, finally led out of Egypt under the hand of Moses. And as he brought the ten great judgments upon Pharaoh and upon the Egyptians, and God called them out of Egypt. And they came out of Egypt with an high hand. And they were redeemed by what? By blood and by power. Just the same way you and I are redeemed. By blood and by power. By the blood of Christ that saved us and by the power of God that brought us into the family and kingdom of God. Convicted us of, a, us of our sins and, and, and wrought a work of grace in our hearts. And so Israel was redeemed in the same way. But I want you to notice that this prophecy not only looks back. Look at Hosea when it, 11, 1. When Israel was a child, then I loved him and called my son out of Egypt. It not only looks back to Israel as a nation, but it looks forward to Jesus, the true Israel of God. And you look at Matthew chapter uh, 2 and verse 15. Matthew 2 verse 15. I want you to notice. Remember at the birth of Jesus and when they fled into Egypt? Uh, let's uh, pick up with verse 12. Matthew 2 verse 12. This was after the, the wise men had presented to Jesus gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. Verse 11. And verse 12. Matthew 2.12. And being warned of God in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed into their own country another way. And when they were departed, behold, the angel of the Lord appear, appeareth to Joseph in a dream, saying, Now look, Arise and take the young child and his mother and flee into Egypt. Flee into Egypt. And be thou there until I bring thee word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. Now this is Jesus, the Son of God, the true Son, the true Israel. In verse 14, when he arose, he took, when he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed into Egypt. Now verse 15 is the key. And was there until the death of Herod, now notice this carefully, the last part of this verse, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt have I called my son. That it might be what? Fulfilled. You see how that prophecy of Hosea 11 verse 1 looks back to Israel's redemption from Egypt, but it also looks, looks forward to Christ's deliverance from Egypt and called back out of Egypt after uh, the death of Herod. You know, sometimes a, a prophecy has two, a twofold face. If you notice how, how Hosea says it, look at Hosea now. When, he says, when Israel was a child, then I loved him and called my son out of Egypt. We know that historically that looks back. But then, in the New Testament, when Matthew is writing, the Holy Spirit has him to apply this very same Scripture of Hosea 11 verse 1 to Christ's deliverance from Egypt after their flight into Egypt. And notice what it says in Matthew 2, verse 15. It says that it might be fulfilled, filled full, complete. That it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord. What did Hosea speak of? 
not just of Israel and Egypt, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt have I called my son. Now Matthew tells us that what Hosea said referred to Christ's deliverance. Out of Egypt. Out of Egypt have I called my son. Sometime when we read, when we'll get to the book of Joel, when we read prophecies in Joel, we'll find that it has a partial fulfillment. And then it, or a partial, uh, we'll put it this way, a partial reference. And then a real fulfillment. And we're going to find that that reference in the book of Joel will have to do with the the day of Pentecost when they, uh, the Holy Spirit came upon the church. And Peter says something about this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. He speaks of this being that. He says this is that. But he doesn't say this is fulfilled because there's a yet, yet a fulfillment of that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. And when we get into the book of Joel, we'll see that it's not yet fulfilled what Peter said, but he said this is that. It has a reference to what Joel says, but it's not fulfilled. So when you use the word fulfilled, you'll find that it has its uh, fulfillment in that particular thing. Now back in Hosea chapter 11, if you will, verse 1 again. When Israel was a child, then I loved him. You know, the wonderful thing about this passage of Scripture, it shows uh, God's love. We said that verses 1 through 11 here in Hosea 11, verses 1 through 11, shows us the mercy of a merciful God. And it shows us the love of a, a loving God. Then I loved him and called my son out of Egypt. I want you to notice five things here, or six things rather. A sixfold expression of divine love. And you'll find it in verses uh, 1 through 4. A sixfold expression of divine love. But first of all, let's take up with verse 2 and and speak of what they did. As they called them, so they went from them. Find that even though after they were delivered from uh, Egypt, that they still went from God. So they went from them. They sacrificed unto Balaam and burned incense to the graven image. But notice verse 1, the word called. When Israel was a child, then I loved him and called. You might put a, a one by that. There are six things. A sixfold expression of God's love. When God loved, He called. And He called. In verse 1. Now then, verse 3 says, I taught. Taught is the second one. I taught Ephraim also to go, taking them by their arms. I taught. How do you teach a child to walk? I taught. He says, I taught Ephraim to go, also to go, taking them by their arms. You take a little child and you know you put your uh, hands under its arms and try to get it to walk. And, and lo and behold, if it starts to stumble, you take your hands and hold it up. That's what God has done for them. That's what God has done for us. So taught is the second word. I want you to notice something else. And then it says, but they knew not that I healed them. He was their healer. He healed them. Not only uh, in physical ways from time to time, but in a spiritual way, basically. He healed their backslidings. He healed their their spiritual malady. Now look in verse 4. Healed would be the third one. You have... In verse 1, the word called. In verse 3, taught. And in verse uh, 3, healed. In verse 4 now, 
I drew them with the cords of a man with bands of love. I drew them with cords of a man with bands of love. So the next word is drew. God's love and mercy is what is at stake here. And this is a sixfold expression of His love and of His mercy. That's how He dealt with Israel. And then what did He say in verse 4? Another one. And this is more than just a word. You might underline the whole thing. I was to them as they that take off the yoke on their jaws. That statement, take off the yoke on their jaws. That's number five. Put number five beside that one. Don't be afraid to write in your Bible. Take off the yoke of their jaws. I think I've mentioned before that when you ride a horse down to the to the stream, the river, Riodosa River, I used to ride up to Cerro Blanco time and time again. You cross the river about uh, 12 or 14 times. I forget now how many crossings because it's been a long time. But anyway, you cross the stream back and forth and go up the South Fork, which is, you went straight up, straight up the upper canyon through the reservation. The South Fork is called. You cross back and forth the river and then you end up on the the south and west side of uh, Sierra Blanca, right up close to the top. But to make a long story short, when you come to that river and that horse is thirsty, do you just uh, sit on top of him, drive him up to the river, let him put his head down and start drinking? Well, you know, your weight on there doesn't do him any good. The saddle itself doesn't do him any good. So... You can step off that horse and give him the rein and let him drink out of the stream. Well, that's pretty good. That's second best. But then the third way, and what God does, he, I, what did He say? As they that take off the yoke on their jaws, if, if you consider this and apply it to the horse, we know it's not really talking about the horse here. It's talking about them being under a burden of servitude. But anyway, He relieved them of that. But if you take that bridle and slip the bits out of his mouth and pull them up under his neck and put hold the halter up over his head and give him his rein and he can put his head down there. You still have control of the horse. Put his head down there and drink that water with no cold bit in his mouth and you can hear him just sip it and squash it and drink it. And they really enjoy it. And they quench their thirst and you slip that bit back in their mouth and go on your merry way. But there's a way of being merciful and gracious even to animals. Well, here Israel is spoken of in this way. I drew with them with cords of a man, with bands of love, and I was to them as they that take off the yoke on their jaws. He made everything in the way of relief for them. Oh, I know you may give it a lot of kinds of meanings, but the Hebrew word says lift up. Lift up the yoke on their jaws. Now I want you to notice that's number five. And then number six says, and I laid meat unto them. He fed them. Laid meat unto them. Here's a sixfold expression of divine love. I want you to get that and we'll close with this thought. Called in verse one. When Israel was a child, then I loved him and called. Notice, all all of it's done on the basis of God's love and God's mercy. God's good to us, isn't He? God loves us and He's called us. He's done all of these things for us individually. Because God loved us, He called us. 
I called my son out of Egypt. That's out of the world, out of bondage. They were in bondage. We were in bondage of sin. Now, verse 3, I taught after we were called. What did Jesus say after you uh, convert people? He said, preach the gospel, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. And then He said what? Teaching them to observe all things. I taught Ephraim also to go, taking them by their arms. God takes us by our arms and teaches us how to walk. But they knew not that I healed them. He's healed them. Verse uh, 4 says, I drew them with the cords of a man, with bands of love. If God had not drawn us, where would we be? And then I was to them that take off the yoke on their jaws. God relieves the anxiety and the things that we have in, in the problems in life, in the and the pressures of life. And then he says, and I laid meat into them. He feeds us and takes care of us. Well, we'll let that suffice for our lesson tonight. We'll pick up in Hosea chapter 11, verse 5, in our next lesson. Uh, that'll be Wednesday evening. So thank you for your patience and your kind attention.